This is Bitcoin Magazine Happy Hour, everybody. I'm your host, Colin Harper. And today with me, I've got Dave Hollerith, Brandon Green, and Michael Tyberg. Hello. Howdy, guys. All right. So uh, this week, we're going to be going over uh, the IRS's new crypto guidelines, which uh, came out this week. It was the first like concrete guidance they've given in five years. Uh, dealt a lot with airdrops and hard forks. Clarified a few other things. Left uh, some questions still unanswered. Uh, we're also going to be going over Lee Kewen's bombshell article from uh, DevCon 5. And, uh, yeah, so talking about how Ethereum said uh, – uh, how Joseph Lubin and Vitalik basically admitted on stage that Ethereum can't scale. And uh, the uh, the community is still optimistic about ETH 2.0, so we'll be diving into that a little bit. Uh, we're also going to talk about the Hong Kong protests and a little bit about uh, the uh, quote-unquote free speech network Gab doubling down on Bitcoin. So uh, let's go ahead and just get started. So the United, United States Internal Revenue Service recently released uh, some Q&As and some guidelines and clarifications about its uh, cryptocurrency tax policy, uh, a few key things to go over before we dive into some analysis. Um, wallet-to-wallet transfers you know, to yourself are not taxable events. That makes sense. A big win for us. Um, for people who want to spend Bitcoin like myself, sorry, kind of sucks. Uh, that is not exempt from capital gains uh, tax. Uh, if you spend Bitcoin on a good or service, you have to report that on your uh, on your tax returns as either a capital gain or capital loss, depending on the price of the asset when you bought it and when you sold it. Well, which, but which makes, which makes total sense, though, right? But but they did add in there that you can choose if you have all the uh, transaction information, you can choose quote unquote which coins yes. you use. So this is this is pretty cool. Because they don't take your wallet, uh, your wallet total, all the coins that you have in there as one sum. You can take, like Brandon said, certain transactions and say, I bought, you know, um, 0.5 Bitcoin on November whatever, 2017, and I sold it on November whatever, 2019. And you can actually pinpoint those transactions themselves, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Like, it's kind of nice that they recognize the difference between, you know, like certain holdings and uh, times when you bought in and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it adds like it lets you have like some sort of optimal way of spending your bitcoins. You know, if you're going to spend a lot and you didn't just buy some, uh, so like you're going to have a capital gains tax regardless. You can aim for those, you know, one year longer held coins, get that lower capital gains rate. Whereas if you just want to buy and spend somewhere, you can buy and spend without having to impact the rest of your holdings. So. Right. That's a really good point because, like, you could basically say, okay, well, I bought these coins at this, like, you know, let's say I bought these coins three months ago and I spent them today instead of saying I bought these coins two years ago and spent them today because then the capital gains for the latter transaction is obviously a lot more and you would have to pay more on the transaction. Exactly. Um, so there's a little bit of leeway there. But I think the big uh, the big takeaway from this or what people have been really talking about is uh, – what the IRS is doing to treat uh, forks and airdrops uh, and how they're uh, using those two mechanisms to define what your total cryptocurrency income is for capital gains. And uh, Brandon, I know you've got some some thoughts on this, so I'll let you uh, kind of take it over from here. Yeah, I can riff on this for a second. And, you know, the if I could have one word that would just be to describe this whole guideline would be just whack. I mean, they're just not thinking about what their guideline means. Uh, the short of it is that any sort of fork or airdropped coin uh, counts as income the moment that you got the coins. The moment the fork happened, really, is what they're saying. Uh, so it leaves a ton of questions. 
first and foremost, like, there's a, a huge attack vector where basically anyone can go out, make their forked coin, because it's all open source, make, you know, even make their own exchange that they're uh, trading it on, uh, uh, trade a dollar's worth of volume, put it at a ridiculously high, you know, quadrillion dollar market cap, and force everyone who owns the coin, and, you know, that could be anyone, you could even send your private keys to someone, and uh, then, quote-unquote, they have the coin, and basically give them, you know, a trillion dollars worth of uh, uh, income that they'll never be able to actually realize. Uh, and I, I yet- feel like that situation is not very likely, though. Like, I mean, because, like, you have to have a market rate. <coughs> I mean, we talked about this yesterday, right? Like, if there's no set value or no going market rate for the coin, then you, can you, you, like, you, you can't just set an arbitrary market cap and say this coin is worth this. Because if the market isn't buying that asset on, for on that... Yeah, but, like, the IRS isn't going to look at that and be like, ah, yes, Mr. Green has a trillion dollars worth of income for 2019. Like, there's no way they're going to take that seriously because it's not a real asset. Well, really, they just haven't defined what a market rate is, right? Like, uh, That is, is that, true. and that's that an, that's one an, exchange? Yeah, that is true. And that's another problem, I think, that this kind of unearths, and we talked about it a little bit yesterday, is, like, I think you set out three scenarios, right? So it's, like, you can either define it. Like, let's say you got four coins from Coinbase, right? You can either define the market rate as immediately when it hits your wallet, the, the forked coin, which is very hard to do because, like, who knows what the market rate is. Um, the, the first time, you know, a market rate really shows up on exchanges, like the first time it's actively traded and goes into the order books. Or you could define uh, the market rate for that forked coin at the time that you actually come in possession of it, right? Because, like, Coinbase did not give every Bitcoin holder or user on their platform, their Bitcoin cash the second it was forked. It was something like what, like a year later or something yeah, like that? It wasn't a year later, but a few months. it was a few months. I mean, the, the Coinbase thing specifically is going to be a really interesting case study because basically uh, Bitcoin cash was forked in July. Uh, Coinbase added it in December. Like, 2017, by yeah, the way. Yeah, uh, 2017. Uh, maybe it was August, but uh, late July, August, something like that. And uh, uh, they didn't like the the day that they added it to Coinbase, they didn't allow sell orders uh, for you know a few hours, and so what ended up happening is the price got bought up and bought up and bought up because there were there was no ability to actually sell on there, uh, and basically the price went from like twenty five hundred dollars. This is on specifically on Coinbase's exchange, twenty five hundred dollars all the way up to almost nine thousand dollars per bit, uh, Bitcoin Cash. Uh, so the question is like. When did that income count for uh, the Coinbase holders of Bitcoin? Was it when Bitcoin Cash was forked, when they literally didn't have the coin yet? Was it when uh, Coinbase awarded it to their account, when it was like $2,500? Or was it when they allowed selling orders, which was when it hit like $8,500? And if you say, you know, all three of those could be what the IRS rules. It's like, I have no idea what they're going to say. They're clearly not paying attention. But, uh, uh... the problem is, is that, you know, they could make the argument that it's when you're able to sell your Bitcoin cash, which would be at $9,000 per Bitcoin cash. And so, like, people holding a few Bitcoins on Coinbase are going to have to go back to their 2017 filings, amend them with this extra income of a few Bitcoin cash tokens, uh, uh, and figure out how to pay in, uh, income tax on that when one Bitcoin cash now is, like, 200 bucks. Yeah, for sure. And like one of the things that I think is interesting about um, some of the things that you're saying there about the timing of claiming the asset, right? It's like, how do we even define when the asset is claimed or even how it's claimed, right? Like, for instance, if you're talking to some Bitcoiners, now this like distinction might not work for regulators, 
But if you're holding your Bitcoin on an exchange, you don't even hold the keys to that. Technically, you don't own that asset, at least for us, right? Now, in the eyes of the IRS and in regulators, like by all rights, you have the password to your account. So yes, you do own those assets. But um, Coinbase is the one holding those coins, right? The forked coins. Um, we did not even have a chance to, those who use Coinbase, to have those funds until later, right? Um, and this gets even trickier when you look at like other exchanges like Binance, we're like, you know, I'm sure anyone who's had a Binance account since it opened in 2017, like you've gotten loads of airdrops, like the the Tron airdrop in November 2017 for like 500 TRX. Um, like they supported Super Bitcoin when that forked. So if you had any Bitcoin on uh, and like Bitcoin Diamond, they've supported a bunch of Bitcoin forks. And like, you know, for me, the big question is like these a lot of these airdrops and these forks aren't, you know, to, to, to put it bluntly, like consensual. So it's like I'm not touching those assets. I'm not even trying to liquidate them sometimes. Like I'm just leaving them because they're not even worth touching. You know, like I don't I, – I, they're, they're shit coins and I don't consider those part of anything that I would want to hold, right? I think uh, Stop and Decrypt on Twitter said it like if someone drops a bag of trash off on your doorstep, are you liable for that trash? You know, and that's simplifying it a little bit. Um, but I think that raises an interesting question for – you know, what constitutes actual control of an asset and what constitutes claiming an asset. And something that I uh, talked about uh, yesterday when we recorded the podcast um, for the first time when we had audio issues was this idea of like how many of you, if you use Ethereum, have opened up your Ethereum wallet and just found a bunch of random tokens that you had no idea where they came from and they were just random airdrops, right? Well, I have an Ethereum wallet with probably about 12 shitcoins on it that were airdropped to me through different times throughout my holding period of whatever tokens I had that uh, constituted those airdrops. And, you know, I would not consider them being in my wallet as me claiming those, right? Because I have no intention to do anything with those tokens. For me, it would make sense that claiming a token would be when you move to liquidate or move to custody it, right, outside of the wallet that it was airdropped in, whether that be an exchange or something else. That that makes sense. It just seems like at this point nobody has any clue, like, what – that would, what a custody would be and not be because, you know, there's not, like, a lot of, like, officialized kind of things like that. Like, who's to say one exchange would be, a, like, a custody and another one wouldn't be? But it sounds like, in general, these regulations are just super complicated. Like, I read, like, the examples they use for, like, these kind of scenarios. They're hypothetical, and they also just kind of show that they don't – that the IRS doesn't really understand how the technology works at all. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, unfortunately, custody part doesn't matter because they already said it's not about the custody of it. It's about where, like, what was it worth when it was forked. So it's not even, you don't even have to take really, you know, any external steps to claim these tokens. If they're attached to your private keys for one token, like, you know, for Ethereum or for Bitcoin or whatever, you are liable for that income, period, in a discussion. That's what right. they just said. Yeah, I know. And I just, I guess my point is I think that's just, like, misguided because it, like... absolutely. Um, I'll give you, you know, one quick other scenario, a doomsday scenario of this. But, uh, you know, we had a real issue with some of these Bitcoin forks about uh, a replay protection, right? Basically, the the ability to actually claim these new tokens and when you transfer them, not have the worry of uh, a Bitcoin miner or another miner potentially, you know, also taking your Bitcoin in that same transaction. That's why replay protection is so important, you know, uh, uh if you all of a sudden, when uh, a new fork happens, you have to move that to an exchange ASAP in order to realize that income so that you don't lose money and taxes on it, 
Now you're also putting your Bitcoin up in an incredibly precarious situation where you could just flat out lose it because of uh, uh, poor replay protection or poor, you know, uh, uh, development on this new fork. So it's just, I mean, it's ludicrous to think of people actually having to comply with this. Uh, I think the, the the one maybe saving grace is uh, what, uh, uh, you know, Niraj and Peter Van Valkenburg at Coin Center were talking about, which was that you could still make the argument, and uh, you're making an argument, right, at this point, so this is going to be settled by some arbiter somewhere, uh, but you can make the argument that really at the moment of the fork, the market around these coins are zero. Uh, even if the market springs up just seconds afterwards, at the moment of the fork, the real value of these uh, forked tokens is zero, and therefore you can claim all the income is zero, and then only pay it when you sell the property or the token uh, uh, and claim that capital gains tax liability. And, I mean, that's what makes the most sense, right? That protects everyone from these r- random forks. It's how other uh, other things that are treated as property work. You know, you don't realize when a cow has a baby, you don't realize that as income right there on the spot. You realize it when you sell the new cow, right? Like, this is the same kind of deal. So, you know, hopefully there's going to be some future clearing up of this. Maybe even the IRS comes out and says, you know, we actually got this guideline wrong. Uh, you know, a guy can dream, right? But for now, uh, I think it's pretty ludicrous. My word is whack. Uh, and, you know, that's all I have to say about that. All right. Well, we'll uh, just whack on to the next topic then, I guess. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> just whack off? Is that better? Mm. Whack around. How about that? No comment. <laughs> all right. So um, let's go ahead and dive into um, Lee Kuen's article. For Coindesk, uh, titled Scam or Iteration at DevCon. Scam is in quotes, by the way. Scam or Iteration at DevCon, Ethereum diehards still believe in 2.0. Quick caveat, uh, Lee probably did not write that headline. So if you guys are like castigating her for that on Twitter, just make sure that you're actually uh, throwing criticism around for the body of the text itself. Um, The reason I say that is because I think calling Ethereum a scam is a little heavy-handed. I don't know which editor put that in there, but at the end of the day, uh, the substance behind this article is is pretty sound, right? Um, Basically, what Lee is criticizing here is Joseph Lubin and Vitalik Buterin at a recent conference. I don't remember which conference it was. Ethereal Uh, Tel Aviv. Yep, Ethereal Tel Aviv. Basically said, and I quote, we, Joseph Lubin said, we knew it wasn't going to be able to scale for sure. Vitalik nodded his head in um, affirmation. And uh, this really uh, blew up within the Bitcoin community. And a lot of people like Grubles from Blockstream was all over this. People saying basically like, like, y'all, we fucking told you so. Like this thing has been a scam from day one. It was marketed as being scalable. If you look at the marketing literature, it actually was marketed as a scalable platform. And uh, – in Lee's piece, she dives into a lot of primary source interviews with, um, you know, Vitalik and people building on dApps on Ethereum. And she highlights this contrast between Ethereum's, uh, th- like, future uncertainty and the Ethereum community's, like, effusive support and optimism for the platform, even as this monolithic uh, or this, the, the, this behemoth um, undertaking of migrating all of Ethereum onto this new platform that we still don't even know how it's going to work is 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 is, is being discussed. 
Uh, she says uh, ETH 2.0 is you know about two years away. There's no plan for figuring out how we're going to migrate all of these DApps, all the money just, Legos. Just two years away, trademark. Yeah, seriously. I mean, think about how many times we've heard about like Constantinople hard fork and proof of stake. I mean, all this stuff has been talked about for a long time. And uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, are we blowing the lid off of a you know scam in this case, or is this just some really, or is this just a lot of growing pains that Ethereum is having to go through, right? Because people obviously on the Ethereum side of the uh, of the field, like basically said, you like how dare you write this kind of hit piece? Um, you're devaluing all these years of hard work from all these developers in this decentralized community. And then Bitcoiners and other people and some no-coiners no are saying, like, this is hard-hitting journalism, uh, exposing some flaws in a system that has made promises that it really can't keep right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, my hot take on it, though, is that, you know, she was apparently presenting or on stage, at least, at DevCon 5 and got really berated by some of the people at the conference. There was some real vitriol spewed her way. Uh, uh, I think that in and of itself is a shame. Uh, we should, you know, hold ourselves to a standard where we're not berating journalists. You know, I'm speaking as a media, you know, part of a media company here. But, you know, she's doing her job. And, you know, maybe the headline was harsh. But we've got to be good enough and, like, uh, uh, you know, cool enough to be able to take a harsh headline without turning around and, you know, making a uh, journalist feel like they're not welcome or feel unsafe or feel like they they can't you know talk to you she she likened it to a trump rally on on one of her tweets she's like which i think like i'm gonna go ahead and be honest like response to her no she yeah she said like the response is akin to something that you'd see at a trump rally which i don't know i think that's a little embellished yeah i mean like ethereum bitcoin they are like religions to people who who have gotten into this and then they're also like you know we're all like financially involved in it so like the incentives there, like everybody has a different reason for how they want to take this article. And like I think uh, it's like – I mean it makes perfect sense that you would get really pissed off with her if she's just, you know, this journalist coming in and trying to create scandal. But all that to say, it seems like what she – everything she's put out there is pretty damn relevant and like that needs to be called out, you know? Yeah, she's asking the right questions and like – She's she's getting at the heart of a, what a lot of Bitcoiners are saying. That like that being said, like the, coming from a Bitcoiner myself, you have to understand this article is very much written from the perspective of a Bitcoiner. Like you can tell in her tone, and like Lee is a Bitcoiner, right? Like she's never like she's always been very hard on ICOs and token projects in her reporting. That's kind of been one of her sticks. Is like you know talking to these uh, these token companies and kind of unearthing you know the scamminess underneath. Um, but, you know, it is very much written from the perspective of a Bitcoiner. I think that's why so many Ethereans and ETH heads really did not like it because it was – it is biased, right? But, like, you know, at the same – by the same token, you could say it's biased for a reason. There's a reason that Bitcoin has, you know – like, for me at least, Bitcoin has proven its use case as a decentralized monetary system. And, like, that's it. That's all you need to say. Like, people always trying to give these narratives to Bitcoin. I mean, obviously, there's digital gold in there. There's the, 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 the promise of a decentralized payment system. But at its core, Bitcoin, what Satoshi created, was a decentralized monetary system. We have that use case. It exists. There's a need for it. We've seen it stress-tested and used. But, like, to her, uh, to her credit and to, like, the credit of, you know, all Bitcoiners have been saying this, um, Ethereum's promise to be a decentralized financial system 
in a decentralized web with all of these apps that are going to decentralize everything we do. It's it's so far it's a pie in the sky dream. It's a boil boil the ocean tactic. You mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, uh, I don't know. I, I think one of the more interesting things coming out of this, and you kind of hit on it, Dave, was like we are starting to see like the way that Ethereans reacted to this news is the same way that Bitcoiners react to like mainstream news FUD. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. going back to the boiling the oceans and like you know it's used by drug dealers, um, and they're really starting to consolidate their own kind of. Uh, their own religion, and they have their own dogma. And, like, that's the response that you saw to Lee was, like, this, like, kind of, like, you know, hardline. Yeah, yeah, that kind yeah. of, exactly. It's like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And, like, you I mean, know. she made big claims. Yeah, I mean, like, she made. Basically... Yeah, and, and also, you know, uh, the way that she wrote the article, she uses this juxtaposition, right, which is a really strong rhetorical uh-huh. tool to get, uh, uh, you know, and kind of an emotional response because basically you're pointing out incongruities. You're saying on the one hand, this thing, it turns out like doesn't work really in the way that it is right now. And yet here I am at the big conference of people trying to make it work and they're all over the moon about it, right? Like trying to make this pie in the sky dream of a ETH 2.0 come true. And so like that right there, the way that she formed the article was always going to bring a gut reaction from people who, you know, love ETH. So I, I'll concede that. I still think though we got to hi- hold ourselves to a higher standard than you know berating someone at a conference. Oh no, yeah, yeah. I, I totally. I mean, I agree with that. Like, you, you shouldn't just like. I, I don't. Also, I don't know like what was said because like I don't. You know, like I've, I haven't seen audio or video. It could have just been like a single heckler basically just saying "fuck you," which like still like not a good show, but like. But even on Twitter afterwards, when she was kind of pointing it out, you know, there are plenty of people who were jumping in saying. Well, you know, you you got what you deserve and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah, that's true. But, like, to be fair, how many times have Bitcoiners in their toxic maximalist style just gone on Twitter and absolutely fucking roasted somebody? Well, it's true, right? You like, know? I mean, this, <laughs> like, is, this is one of the things that I still to this day have to reconcile. And it's what you guys already hit on is the fact that, you know, in this space, we have a blurred line between, you know, a movement based on ideological principles uh, uh, versus – some sort of weird cult-like feeling where anyone who atta- like uh, uh, criticizes is attacking us, even with legitimate criticisms. And there are always going to be legitimate criticisms. There are a lot of illegitimate criticisms that come out, right? But there are legitimate criticisms. We have to treat those with logic and with you know measured response and with uh, uh, you know reasoned debate. And yet, anytime someone comes in with a point you know uh, made against X Y Z. Uh, uh, there's a mafia, you know, Twitter mob coming up and springing yeah. up around them. And that delegitimizes us. That makes us look like we're just a bunch of emotionally charged people trying to pump our backs. Well, yeah, imagine being an outsider to the crypto industry and you make a criticism and then suddenly some, like, anonymous cartoon is calling you, like, a fiat boy or, like, something like that or, on or worse, you know? Or worse, or, like, you know, like a fucking fiat pig. Like, so, like, yeah, to your point, like... I think that's the important thing here. And, like, I think that this criticism is legitimate. Like, I think that, like... Now, what I will say is, like, calling it a scam... And, again, I'm not saying she did this. That was put in the headline by an editor, more than likely. Like, calling this a scam is too far for me because, like, saying it's a scam implies that there is nothing going on, that there is no development, people aren't trying, and that Vitalik, Lubin, Diorio, all those dudes just took the money and ran, right? I mean, like... Some people are less involved in the project now than they used to be. Like, 
like Charles Hoskinson, you know, like he prop, I mean, like he cashed out and started his own new shit coin, right? Um, but you know, I'm also of the mindset like let's wait, wait and see what Ethereum 2.0 does. Like I'm not optimistic about it. Um, but they are trying to build a movement here. Um, but uh, I do think the big takeaway from this is like a lot of really smart Bitcoiners have been saying for years, it's like what Ethereum wants to do, it's not there yet. And we, we can't, we can't make these promises. And I think that really is the big, the straw that broke the camel's back is the promises. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, but the flip side of it is that ultimately what we all strive for in this space is anti-fragility. And if you're going to have anti-fragility, that means that you got to be able to take the criticisms and let them just bounce right off. Uh, and, and so, you know, Bitcoin has taken criticism after criticism after criticism. And uh, you don't have to, you know, worry about, ooh, is Bitcoin going to survive this whole it's heating up the oceans because it's causing climate change kind of criticism? Of course it's going to survive. It's anti-fragile. And the more people use this against Bitcoin, the more it's just not going to affect Bitcoin. When people are seeing, you know, this first really valid criticism about Ethereum that, yeah, they marketed this as like a scalable solution and it wasn't scalable and they knew it, right? Like you've got to be able to take that criticism, reckon with it, you know, look Ethereum in the mirror and basically say, you know, this was a mistake by everyone involved to try and say that this is, you know, a scalable thing when it wasn't and they knew it wasn't. All right. That's, that's just, that's fact. But now let's move past that if you're an Ethereum person and you say, you know, like uh, we're still building something important and ultimately this criticism doesn't matter because ETH 2.0 is going to come and it's going to be great, great, and, you know, uh, proof of stake and all that, whatever people care about in Ethereum. But like when you die, you fall on the sword of someone calling your token a scam, you know, like understand the, the third party objective viewpoint watching that happen. Uh, and saying like, ooh, you know, like she really hit on something here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that that's the big distinction is like, um, obviously I think this because I'm a Bitcoiner, but going back to the idea, like I think Bitcoin has proven that it has a use case. Um, in the early days, like it was uncertain, right? And there was a lot of FUD and there was a lot of legitimate criticisms lobbed, lobbed towards its community. Um, but we withstood those. We've continued to evolve a narrative that has stuck and like makes sense to people. Ethereum is really still searching for a narrative and like, and to say that it is a sure thing is just not true. And I think that that's what this criticism, that the, what this piece is really peeling back the layers and saying, look guys, like it could be real, but don't act like it's, don't act like you're there yet. Cause so many Ethereans act like they're there on Twitter and they're just not yet. But anyway, we're going to move on. Uh, Hong Kong protests next. We want to do that. And the, uh, more, more specifically, um, the, was it the, was it the Astros? Not Astros. Was it Houston? Was Rockets. It the Rockets, yeah. Um, the Houston Rockets, uh, the news that, uh, what is it, like their general manager like tweeted in, in favor of the Hong Kong protesters and uh, China basically said, we're not going to air your your uh, your games anymore over in mainland China. Um, and we're starting to see kind of, uh, it's kind of become a thing where like certain, like I think, what is it, Blizzard did something too about like revoking some dude's like winnings from some esports tournament like you're starting to see this whole uh, the whole hong kong protest become an exercise in what political speech is and like also what corporate speech is uh and how easily that can be censored and also like national power <laughs> yeah absolutely like china china is is you know pull, seems to be pulling the strings behind all of this and 
doing a pretty good job of, of silencing people. Yeah, I mean, uh, we should go through the TLDR of what exactly the protest is and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the one thing I'll add to all of this is, uh, believe it or not, South Park has just hit the nail on the head yeah, in really terms good. of showing, like, the the ridiculous... Like, South Park's probably the best satirical, uh, you know, publication we still have in the U.S. You know, like, they hit the nose on the, like, uh, on the head every single time. It is so good. And you should see their Banned in China episode. It's Dude, hilarious. When did this come out? It came out last and, week. And uh, Matt, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of South Park, uh, issued this letter... Um, after the NBA stuff, oh, and yeah, uh, they said, like the NBA, we welcome the Chinese censors into our homes and into our hearts. We, too, love money more than freedom and democracy. Z doesn't just look like Winnie the Pooh at all. <laughs> Tune into our 300th episode this Wednesday at 10. Long live the great Communist Party of China. May this autumn sorghum harvest be bountiful. We good now, China? <laughs> like... I mean, just totally spitting in the face of uh, this, you know, I mean, they hit the nail on the head, like Brandon was saying, that this is all about corporate censorship um, and sucking up to the powers that be. So taking a step back, uh, these Hong Kong protests have been going on for 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 about, you know, since the, the, the Wikipedia says March. I mean, it's basically yeah. been all of 2019. And uh, they started in response to an extradition bill that was uh, going to be signed by uh, uh, Hong Kong's leadership. It basically would have made it possible to extradite any political prisoners or really anyone from Hong Kong to mainland China w- without really any probable cause or just cause at all. Like anybody who um, got like, like any sort of – like you could get like some sort of like traffic violation or something. And, and yeah, like very – yeah, exactly. Well, and more importantly, you could break a law that's a law in mainland China, but isn't a law in Hong Kong, and be tried and China for it, and can still extradite you back to mainland China for that, uh, you know, law you're breaking, and try you in mainland China, even though you're living in Hong Kong, you're in Hong Kong when it happened. The obvious one being criticizing Xi Jinping, right? Yeah. Like, uh, if you do that while you're in Hong Kong, and this extradition bill passes, now you are extradited back to mainland. And, you know, you probably, like, disappear. Yeah, and that's that's really important context. I mean, this would be, like, I don't know. Imagine if, like, D.C. somehow were an independent state. It's weird. And, like, yeah. you lived in D.C. and you said something about Trump. And then Trump, like, extradited you to, like, mainland America. But anyway, um, it's it sparked, like, effusive protests from the Hong Kong populace. I mean – They've been marching to the tune of, like, 2 million people. Like, there have been multiple marches with more than 2 million people. And I think this is something, like, I saw us, I was listening to, like, NPR, and I think they said something like, like, how much, let's see what Hong Kong's populace is really quickly. Yeah, the Hong Kong's total population is 7 million. So 2 million people, I mean, you're talking about basically, you're talking about more than a fourth of their populace are, like, are, are marching in protest of this thing. And, and violence has escalated. There have been a lot of protesters um, who have, you know, started uh, basically fighting with police openly in the streets with things like petrol bombs and things like that. Police have started using um, – have actually started using their firearms to suppress certain protests. I mean that's why I think people are getting so obviously fired up about the NBA buckling, right? Or like – because what, what ended up happening with that? Like did the NBA issue an apology? Like what – no, so actually, Adam Silver uh, like went on uh, a press conference yesterday and spoke out in support of Hong Kong. So 
that actually made it a little more complicated now because China's not, or the NBA is not really just folding to what China wants them to say. That's good. Well, I, I mean, uh, you know, China's already pull, pulled all their margin, merchandise off the shelves, and they're yeah. already not filming this uh, NBA game, exhibition game that was over there. So, like, you know, uh, what does the NBA have to lose at this point, I guess? But, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I know NBA, like, I know they probably have, like, a lot. A $4.5 billion business is what they would have to lose. But it's crazy because that's – they're not the only company that's like that. There are yeah, so but, many American companies. Yeah, but to your point, Tyberg, I mean, the NBA is super popular in China. Like, oh, yeah. like they get a oh, lot yeah. of fucking money from the Chinese market. So, um, I mean, certainly it's they're a not going to subject. Like they have a lot to lose. Yeah, they do have a lot to lose. But like you know, to Brandon's point, like I don't know if they're going to go. Away. I mean, I don't know how big their market share is in China. Like I don't know like what percentage. The MBAs? Yeah, I don't know like what percentage of their like 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 gross revenue or net revenue is from like the Chinese market. I'd imagine it's probably pretty sizable, but. They've also got a lot of, you know, I mean, shit ton of NBA fans in, in, in America. Yeah, but China is a really big NBA uh, country. Yeah, for they're, sure. They're Did, huge. Didn't Nike do something recently about, like, I saw something. Like, they, 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 they pulled they, the Rockets merchandise out of their stores. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. In China. There's been... But, you know, to play devil's advocate for a second, and this is actually kind of a, a depressing, like, we're all helpless kind of devil's advocate, but... All these American companies criticizing China for, uh, you know, the whole Hong Kong riots and stuff. Uh, They're not Hong Kong riots. They're Hong Kong protests. Important distinction, right? Uh, Ultimately, are all for naught because China controls their media anyways. No one in China is actually seeing these criticisms. That's the whole point. China has the Great Firewall. They control what their people see. There's no reason to be criticizing all of this because ultimately – the people in China, like, you're not going to sway their opinions. They have no idea what you said. China is controlling them. And, like, of course it doesn't make sense to actively, you know, side with Hong Kong or, or uh, side against mainland China on this issue. Because ultimately you're talking to Americans about it and uh, no one in China is going to see it. And you may lose billions of dollars of business uh, by doing it. So it's like it's a weird almost like your virtue signaling to all of us where you're not actually creating any change because China already has a system to prevent that change from happening. Yeah, I mean, it totally is. I mean, well, it's just, it's 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 ethically blind, though, is the thing. And, like, but obviously that like, capital doesn't care about ethics. Like, capitalism often doesn't. Like, um, so, like, but you are, like you said, um, I think I saw something on Twitter today where it was, like, some dude posted, like, the Colin Kaepernick, like, like believe like set like sat whatever like um, stand up for something you believe in if you mean sacrificing everything and they're like yes Nike's sacrificing so much by like bowing to the Chinese leadership right um, and I always thought when that ad came out I thought it was hilarious because like Nike sales like skyrocketed and all this stuff and like I think that um, like f- for me personally like political consumerism like or just even any sort of like boycott culture like you saw with yeah. like Chick-fil-A back in like whatever that was 2013 2014 or like the ob- obverse where people were buying into a product because of a political stance Virtue it's like exactly it's like yeah. you guys not do you not realize this is just a political move like they're just yeah. playing to your sensibilities because they want your money um and like obviously Nike showed just how toothless it was when it pulled the stuff off the shelves because it cares about its bottom line and like Brandon was saying the chinese are not going to see or hear anything that we hear or see about all of this stuff so it doesn't matter to them 
makes no difference to them. For us, all we care about is like, oh, are the brands that we hold near and dear to our heart, like, you know, fighting for the fighting the good fight, fighting for democracy? And like, obviously, of course, they're not. I think that's super interesting just because, like, can you can you imagine for a second, like, what it would be like if, like, corporate entities were trying to, like, uh, you know, cater to, like, a bunch of Bitcoiners? Like, how how freaking weird that would end up being? Like, Dude, they would- just wait. Wait for the Bitcoin <laughs> lifestyle brands to come out. Like, I'll, I, I'll give it a few years. Just wait. Like, they're just like, you know, like, you don't need anything. You don't need us. So buy these shoes. Radical self-reliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, full node. In your fucking shoes, man. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> something to be said, a lot of this really it was brought on by Twitter, right? Like when these corporate yeah. entities got a Twitter account and all of a sudden could just kind of like throw out there whatever they were thinking. You had some really weird tweets coming out like when it first started. There's a lot of companies like talking about mass shootings or talking about 9-11 or like that kind of stuff. Whereas like, you know, thanks – Pillsbury Toaster Strudel for talking about, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, like there's a weird figuring out. I'm not saying Pillsbury talked about that, but uh, uh, corporate entities are having to figure out like how to play political uh, and like, you know, big things that are happening. And like, do they should they voice their opinion on like what is their role in all of this stuff? And yeah, well, I don't, I don't like, know. Well, it's funny it's because it's playing into a wider trend of corporate personification. Like, how many times have you been on your Twitter feed and you've seen like Wendy's do like a snarky, like ironic, yeah. like yeah. tweet? You know, it's like and they like they knocking Burger King. Or yeah, something. exactly. <laughs> like talking about who has the best like the best chicken sandwich. Like, do you remember that fight between like Chick-fil-A, Popeye's and like Wendy's? And it's like, are you kidding me guys? And that whole scenario is considered like, it's like viral marketing. Yeah, it is viral viral marketing. And like, I saw one recently, man, where they took a Twitter influencer chick. Like she just makeup videos. I mean, I don't know what these, like what these chicks do, but like, and like she was tweeting from her Twitter account and it was promoted by Wendy. She's like, spicy nugs. They're back at Wendy's. Like, Oh my God, I love it. It's like, no, you don't. Like no, like no, you don't love spicy nuggets. Like you might like them occasionally when you're drunk what as fuck. She actually likes spicy. Nuggets. Oh, she might like spicy nuggets, but like who? Like no one, no one's be, no one's eating those spicy nugs, man. But like back to Brandon's point, like where are corporations' roles in all this political discourse? Well, like if we want to take it to like, if we want to take it back to cit- the Citizens United case, which basically said you know corporate money is political speech, is is free speech, it's money. Like you know, like they can contribute to campaigns and stuff, then. Based in the United States context, based on our judicial system, like they have a right to weigh in on these things. Now, whether or not we think that their input is valid because their interests are obviously corrupted by their business model and, you know, there's like conflicts of interest everywhere, uh, it's another question. But I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what happens with, with Hong Kong amidst all the other uncertainty with the trade war and everything else. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately, I don't think that you could tell the story of Hong Kong to a single American and they hear it and not come out in support of Hong Kong. Hong Kong is trying to protest on fundamental human rights that are guaranteed to us by our constitution. They want the right to free speech. They talk, want – Talk to some tankies and some malapologists and they might disagree. Well, true, right? But uh, uh, you know, I saw that tweet thread too about like the uh, – uh, how Mao started his whole rebellion by killing the landlords. And I saw, yeah. you know, just tweet after tweet saying like, oh, this is great kind of stuff. And it like gave me, you know, chills a little bit, like seeing Americans tweet out in support of the Mao communist revolution. But, 
you know, uh, that's a total tangent that we well, don't need I mean, to go latent into. communism, like, it's, it's, it's building among a lot of younger millennials, like... I mean, radicalism on either side is I sort agree. of what everybody skews he, to now, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you got, like, white nationalism on one side, and then you've got, like, extreme, like... I don't know, leftist communist tendencies on the other. Well, yeah. yeah. And I mean, from the, the extreme communist, you know, leftist, really that's, uh, that's America's economy's fault. Like this is a group of people that basically haven't been able to engage with capitalism in a successful way. And because of that, point. they disavow capitalism. And it's like, that's, that's not a smart way to go. Right. Cause like the opposite is Venezuela and, you know, the Soviet union and, you know, China and basically every single mass genocide you've ever seen, uh, uh, was in some way from a, a socialist or communist, you know, government. So uh, uh, that's a, be a really hot take with a lot of people. Quick, yeah, that will be. Real quick, Brandon, one thing I wanted to add, like virtue signaling makes this all really complicated because everyone's trying to like take the Hong Kong protests and sort of like play it to their own for their own benefit, which that sucks. That's kind of just like the weird social media, like meta world we're in. But, like, I think one thing, Tyler Cowen, this, like, economist I really like, he, uh, on his blog, he posted this story. He, he made this point, basically, that, um, like, you know, media outlets are, like, they're covering these topics, but they're downplaying it a lot. Like, he's, he was talking about how ESPN's published, like, one or two articles about it. They probably updated since then, but he, was ta- he posted this on, like, October 10th. And they basically, you know, they wrote these articles, but... They never made it seem like it was a big deal. And it's, like, a huge deal. And, like, like that's the thing is, like, there's also – at the very – if you go to just, like, the base level of all of this, it's, like, there are people just essentially not um, not giving this issue what it needs. Yeah, I mean, and, and to backtrack a little bit on my devil's advocate role, uh, the Hong Kong protests are the single biggest thing probably happening in the world right now. I mean, yeah. this is uh, an economic powerhouse – that it has weird relationships with China uh, where, you know, part of their entire, uh, uh, you know, existence, there was written in this uh, uh, point that they're going to have to at some point actually join mainland China. And a lot of people, you know, the, the Chinese kind of counterpoint is that this is kind of the first step in them eventually joining mainland China. And you're seeing people be like, no, we like capitalism. We like freedom. We like being able to be in Hong Kong and not have to be part of the Chinese system. Uh, you know, we're not going to uh, stand for this, and we're going to, in fact, stand up against this. And, like, it's – I mean, you can draw all the comparisons you want to an American revolution, to a, a French, you know, ideal revolution, all this kind of like, – this is an incredibly important thing that's happening right now, and it is not getting enough attention. I 100 percent agree. Uh, the only question is, like, how do we give it the right attention? And uh, I think that right now we're we're kind of floundering on it. And I will say, too, just quick side note, ESPN is owned by Disney. so mm. All of your favorite brands are owned by, like, five companies. Um, all one, right. One qu- quick last point, because I think uh, I just want to put this out there now. Uh, the best game day sign for college football uh, on Saturday is going to be someone holding up a sign saying uh, the only people who hate this sign more than China is ESPN. And I'll let that, like, sink in for a second because it's going to be just a if that If that actually ends up happening, I'll give you $5 on Monday. If it doesn't happen, I'm disappointed with our entire populace because there should be all sorts of really great 
China signs at the next game day. Yeah, that'd if be. We're missing a we're missing a huge opportunity for. Now. I mean, dude, you should like tweet at some people and like make sure that, that happens because that's actually pretty good. Well, it's college kids, right? Like yeah. they're gonna make it happen for sure. Yeah. All right, so last topic on the uh, table for discussion today: Gab is doubling down on Bitcoin and is going to integrate the Lightning Network. Um, this is something they've had planned for a while, and uh, they're also going to launch some Bitcoin educational resources and a bid to introduce Bitcoin, as they say, and I quote, to a million new users. So for those of you who don't know what Gab is, uh, most of you probably do, um, it is a, uh, I will say, controversial uh, network. It's an alternative social media platform. Uh, The UI and UX is a lot like Twitter, um, but it has become largely a hub for conservative voices, some of which are on the alt and far right. Um, I wrote an article about this this week, and I put controversial in the title. Uh, someone said, what's controversial about free speech? Well, free speech is very controversial. <laughs> like, it's one of the things that gets argued about the most in our democracy. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why it is so controversial is because the uh, Pittsburgh synagogue shooter from 2018 uh, actually frequented the site and posted white nationalist rhetoric on it a lot. And this is kind of gab stick, uh, barring – Obvious uh, illegal content like child porn uh, or you know drug soliciting, drug sales, and things like that. Gab will not moderate what you put on the website, um, and this has obviously uh, drawn a lot of criticism from the mainstream media, which uh, is largely liberally leaning. Uh, no offense to anyone out there if you think that it's not, you're kind of kidding yourself. What ended up happening, especially with the like after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Um, Gab was already getting a lot of like running into a lot of, uh, you know, resistance from uh, web service providers and things like that. But following that, uh, it was the last straw. Cloudflare kicked them off of their web hosting. Uh, Gab found an alternative web host after that. Uh, since this has happened, they've also been deplatformed from uh, numerous uh, payment processors like PayPal, Stripe, Square. Uh, and also uh, Visa, MasterCard, I think like 50-plus banks will not accept deposits from Gab's business account or from its founder, Andrew Torba. Uh, let's see, what else? AOL and Yahoo has blacklisted Gab email addresses. Uh, Google also has put them, filed them as spam. Uh, by default, uh, Google and Firefox have blocked Gab's Descent uh, browser extension, which is basically like this comment section. Uh, it's, it's a browser extension for a comment section that you can integrate with like any website on the web and it allows for free and open discussion in that they blocked that. So Gab ended up forking Braves, uh, the Brave browser, which is, uh, you know, a part of the basic attention token thing. And they forked that browser, started their own browser. And, uh, now you can get to center on that, but like they're building out basically an in-house suite of all these things. They're building their own email service. They've integrated uh, Bitcoin payments through BTC pay server. Now they're doing lightning. Um, and one of the things that I think is fascinating about this is Gab began as an oasis for ostracized voices, usually on the far right to go and have a place to exercise free speech. Now the free speech hub is being censored and it still can't be censored because Gab is using free and open source software to develop their own toolkit so that they can be basically be self-sufficient. I mean, this is like the, one of the most, um, like one of the most Bitcoin companies out there in terms of like self-reliance. And now they are doubling down on Bitcoin as an avenue to fund themselves. It it makes up 30% of their, um, revenue, uh, right now. 
And anyway, I just think this is a, a crazy story. Not a lot of people are talking about it, but yeah, I mean, uh, what there's a few things that jump out at me about all of this. Uh, number one is that this is further proof that you know things create on the internet you cannot be destroyed, right? Like right. there's there's an anti fragility that's there that uh, it'll morph, it'll continue to exist as long as there's a market for it. My thing about Gab is that I think their goal is pure in intention, but their plan is half-baked in that there's a need for conversations like free speech to exist uh, in all forms, right? But uh, there's also a need to bring that free speech into the fold of society where metered, you know, central or even opposing voices can be heard alongside radical voices. And, you know, there can be the normal kind of facilities of a, a society uh, folded into what's going on. You know, right now, Gab is this kind of, uh, you know, uh, haven, you know, if you want, if you're part of them and cesspool, if you're on the other side uh, of free speech and most of the free speech is hateful and it's uh, uh, racist or, you know, not all of it, right? Like there's, there's fine people on both sides, right? You know, tongue in cheek. But the, the point is, is that like, uh, because they're offering this uh, ability for some radical people to have their free speech and there's no one there to like be an opposing viewpoint, uh, that free speech just gets to kind of perpetuate unchecked and because right. – Yeah, and I guess like uh, – so like kind of what you're getting at there is like obviously like – so something like Gab just perpetuates the echo chamber problem, right? But I would also say you know, depending on how you want to frame it – and I'm not saying that you're necessarily saying the opposite of this, but that's partly the fault of mainstream social media. You know what I mean? If you didn't ban these people in the first place – then they wouldn't have to go to another forum where they could just be radicalized further. Right, exactly. I mean, like, that's that's where our shortcomings are. We've ostracized people with these radical views, and now they have a place to still go where uh, uh, they can continue to espouse those radical views to the other people who also have them. And it's, uh, like, the the there's a positive feedback loop that's created there, uh, whereas we had kind of a negative, you know, normalizing feedback loop in society in general. Now these people don't have to hear you know, why they're wrong. And well, I mean, uh, uh, sure. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you can kind of tie this into the Bitcoin movement as well. But, you know, the point is, is that a society, you know, a free society needs to have free flowing thoughts and ideas. And if all of a sudden we're drawing circles around different ideas and pushing them off onto different platforms where no one has to see them, that just leads to some dangerous ideological development that ultimately can lead to things like the Pittsburgh shooting, like other, you know, uh, uh, radical acts of violence that are going to spring up from this unchecked free speech. So, you know, Gab's ideal is is uh, good and pure, but until there's some sort of mechanism by which the greater world can fold into these conversations, I think it's actually kind of a dangerous uh, uh, platform. Yeah, it, go ahead. I actually don't know if... Uh like a, a platform like it's kind of funny because when you when you talk about gab like that I almost think of like Twitter echo chambers and you just outside of crypto think of like some narrow deep uh, dark alley of Twitter let's just say it's a 
I don't know. I, I can't think of. Well, there's a, there's Ethereum a, Twitter. <laughs> Ethereum Twitter, sure. I mean, we'll, we'll poke at Ethereum Twitter, but I really just mean anything. XRP like, Twitter. E, yeah, like outside of crypto, there's even like uh, topics of just, you know, just r- random like uh, obsessions or hobbies or basically little cult movements. But even in those um, environments, that's a free speech platform, sort of. Uh, but that's Twitter. And even on those little. Uh, in those echo chambers, you still kind of have the same environment. So I don't even know if it's necessarily about the platform itself, uh, if as opposed to more just the. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just human nature, right? Like we 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 tend to congregate around people who reflect and share our ideas, our values, and our views. And like, I mean, just look at political groups on Twitter, right? Like, or polit- political groups on Facebook. Like, they're mm-hmm. always either conservative, liberal, leftist, uh, anarchist, things like that. Um, and people are going to – you're never going to stop people from finding people who they agree with and who they, whom they can share ideas with. Um, and that's why I really do think, like, there's something to be said about the fact that we don't really need speech where a dude's going online saying we need to kill all the Jews. We need to kill people who aren't white, right? Like, that's, that's, that's toxic. That's terrible. But at the same time, if you ban that speech, they're just going to go to 4chan. They're just going to go to Gab. They're going to go to Mines. They're going to find another place to that will host their vitriol, right? I mean, if you want to uh, take a step back and zoom out, right, really there's been a capacity for violence that has evolved in the last 60 years, right, kind of with the advent of the atomic bomb, right? Uh, and alongside that capacity for violence – was an interconnectedness of the world. So where all of a sudden, like, you don't have people able to, uh, except for pockets, you know, like the Middle East or, you know, other places where there's been extremist kind of, uh, you know, breeding grounds, there's been, like, alongside the ability to do real widespread harm, there's been a need to integrate into the greater society. But now... You know, if you want to put an inflection point around like 2010 and uh, when social media really started taking off, we've created a way by which people can recluse, like, like recursively seclude themselves from the greater societal, like societal dialogue, and still increase their capacity for violence while decreasing their need to rely on, you know, socially other people like their neighbors. Uh, and so because of that, like, we're creating this weird way where you can pocket yourself into a radical uh, uh, sect while also not integrating with society and then not having any of your uh, ideals checked. And it's like it is a it is a problem not just with Gab. It is a problem with all social It's a problem with, with the Internet, yeah, because, yeah. like, the Internet, like, on one hand can encourage, like, basically uh, independent study – and if you're like a cur- intellectually curious person, you can you can research anything you want to and find any interest on the internet and engage with people who share that interest. But by the same token, what you're getting at is it does encourage collectivism, right? And collectivism is only getting worse. I mean, like that's the funny thing too about uh, I think the alt right movement, right? Like they they rage against identity politics, but their identity politics manifests in a movement for the. For, for white dudes, basically. Exactly. I mean, they use the same arguments to defend that. It, yeah. yeah. And it's totally weird how diversity of thought and free speech eventually leads to, like, pockets, tribes of, like, homogeneity. 
You know? But it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't Social have to. That's what I'm kind of like trying to get at. Yeah. Well, it doesn't have to. But we're, what we're starting to see is like, given how the internet's structured, given how human psychology, given innate human psychology, that's where we're going. So like, and like the million dollar question: How the fuck do you fix it? Well, right. And I mean, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I'm the first person to have thought of this. Right. There's got to be people at Twitter, Facebook, you know, all these places that are actively trying to figure out the answer to this question. Yeah. I'm an optimist. I think we're going to find the answer. I think right now the the path that they've chosen is this deplatforming path, and I think that they didn't uh, like anticipate the second and third order, uh, uh, you know, results and consequences from the deplatforming, which was all right. I'm not able to have a platform here. I'm going to move over here where there's other you know, crazy, uh, extreme people that I can talk to more easily. And, you know, I don't even have to listen to the noise of people saying, wow, you're crazy and extreme. Now I can just listen to other people who are like, yes, you're right. And so, uh, you know, I think this is a solvable problem. I think this is a problem maybe we'll solve in the next decade even. uh, And we'll all be better off because of it. But until then, with these solutions like Gab, I just, I'm so wary of them. And I'm not sold that it's going to be a net good uh and based on the you know the data and all the stuff that's happened so far with gab uh you know it's hard to say that it has been a good now is it anti-fragile is it using bitcoin is it you know is it adopting all the ideologies that we have as bitcoiners sure but Brandon, I, I hate to. How do you be a pragmatist? Just like come and completely disagree with you, but I, I think in the future everything is going to be more, uh, more fractionalized. I think I think there's going to be a lot more tribes. I mean, like if you take the example of like cryptocurrency uh, supporters and enthusiasts being a thing that starts, and then you have all these people who are supporting certain coins. Like, I think that's something that we're going to see, like, across the board, just because as more interests develop, you can get more specific about how you feel about each interest. Um, And I also feel like this is, like, the issue of the public square. And, like, Jesus Christ, like, our public square is, like, complicated in 2019. But I honestly, I think that, uh, I think it's going to get worse. I I just don't, I don't, I feel like this is, like, a issue that's always been an issue throughout time. Yeah, but, you know, the thing is, is that this has been an issue throughout time, but there's been solutions uh, that have sprung up throughout time. And we've had it's, – it's like it's a pendulum, right? We swing yeah. away, we become tribal, and then we swing back and we all come together. And then we swing away and, be, you know – and so we're on a really far swing for, uh, towards, you know, becoming tribalistic and, and everyone's secluded in their own bubble. But – you know, there's gonna, there's such an opportunity as a capitalist to create a solution where, you know, part of this swing away uh, has led to uh, people feeling lonely. We have the highest rates of people identifying as lonely in society today in the, as in the history of the world, right? Like people are not connected, and yet they have the single most empowering connective tool in the history of the world too. There's going to be a solution that mirror like that marriage is the fact that you have the internet you're able to connect with people and the fact that like uh, uh you need to have meaningful connection with people around you who you know can challenge you and can make you think 
and cannot just you know uh, uh, agree, agree, agree until you feel like that your views aren't even going to be successful. Well, yeah, I mean, people, people just people just need less screen time. You know, I was we'll close out with this because it's getting a little long. But I was reading this uh, Vox article recently. Um, I can't remember the the reporter, but she did a really good job. This really long feature where she went and like profiled like famous TikTok users in Mobile, Alabama. Yeah, it was weird. And she talked to a clinical psychologist and basically what she said is like with the advent of social media, especially like when you have just normal everyday people getting like superstar level amounts of attention, you know, with their engagement on Twitter, TikTok, whatever you have, Instagram, all these things. Yeah, basically what what's happening is they're starting to experience the same kind of social isolation and disconnection that celebrities have always felt, right? Where like you're famous um, you're, you know, quote unquote, well liked. Everyone knows who you are, but that doesn't satisfy, and you're still despondent and depressed as hell. Um, and you know, going back to what Brandon was saying, if you really want to engage with these extremely complex topics, I think this is why long form podcasts are becoming more popular. Um, yeah, gnarly, bro. Uh, with things like, uh, you know, Joe Rogan and other guys too, and other women, and all the people who are part of this really resurgence in podcasts. Um, is this idea that we are hungry for long form, intelligible discussion? Yeah, form, anything. Writing too. Yeah, like, seriously. That's like, thing. yeah, like blogs, like through Medium and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Because like when you get in a comment war with people on Twitter, I mean, how many times have we seen on Twitter, Facebook, anything? You're not engaging with ideas. It's it's all about one upping what someone else said, yeah. and just getting out the witticism and just like saying something crushing. But it, it does not lend itself to actually having informed debate. Or, or dialectic, right? Like this is all – it's all about rhetoric at this point. It's like you're just trying to disprove someone. You're not arguing in good faith. And uh, kind of to round off uh, the episode and hit on something Brandon was saying, like, yeah, like uh, Gab is not encouraging debate. It's just encouraging a bunch of people to scream at e- you know, scream into the void on Gab with a bunch of people who agree with them, uh, not, not to unlike some other places on the internet. Um, you know what I think is the single uh, uh, best solution to ostracize people who are extreme is to be able to sit at a table, grab a beer with them, and chat about whatever you want to chat about. Wait, ostracize them or like integrate them into society? Integrate them uh, over a beer, over food, uh, over a happy hour, and just enjoy the conversation. And uh, it's a small step towards, you know building that community again. yeah it's, it's the human element you know when you're screaming at a profile picture with your keyboard over the internet there's there's nothing there but like people are often much more cordial when they're uh face to face but uh anyway i think that rounds out uh episode two of bitcoin magazine happy hour uh you can find me uh on twitter at as i lay hodling and uh where can uh where can our listeners find the rest of y'all Dave Hollerith. You can find me at DS Hollers. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Brandon underscore D underscore Green. I'm going to work on getting a better handle, but that's what I got right now. My last name, Hell yeah, it is. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we hope to see you next week. Peace, guys.